My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, this is John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Today we have Pastor Jones with us to discuss the next message that Jesus himself preached during his ministry on earth. Pastor, you say at the beginning of your remarks on Christ's sermon that the theme Jesus was driving at covers quite a large section, from Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, until Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. You further stated that these verses are linked together on the issue of whether salvation is by faith or by works. How did you arrive at these conclusions? Yes, by the way, John, thank you for having me on to discuss the message, um, I honestly never saw the connection between the events that really make up this section. It's about four different things. Um, until I was actually studying for this message uh, maybe about a year ago. And I'm not sure if it was a Bible commentator or who it was, or if it just was something that you know, the Lord opened my eyes to as I was studying. But I began to see that, that um, the passage was organized uh, in a way that brought up a reoccurring theme that Jesus seems to be driving at, which was contrasting God's grace with the futile attempts that many make to impress the Lord with their good works. So how how then does the account of Christ blessing the children fit into the issue of grace versus works? Well, when those moms brought their young uh, kids, uh, at least uh, some of them, by the way, were infants, to Jesus, they obviously uh, were somewhat irritating, uh, possibly uh, very disruptive, because you may recall that the disciples rebuked the moms for even bringing them. And I talked about that in great detail in last week's message, uh, which, again, if people want to listen to that, if they didn't get a chance to, it'd be on, uh, it'd be, uh, on our Facebook page. you get a link there uh, to the podcast. But still, Jesus uh, took these young ones up in his arms, blessed them without the kids having done anything to earn our Lord's blessing. So if Christ further stated that unless people received God's kingdom like these little children... They would never enter it. That means that Jesus used his blessing of the children as an example of how to come to him for salvation. Well, that teaching also begs a question, how did these little ones receive Jesus' blessing? Well, since they did nothing to earn Christ's grace toward them, it seems pretty obvious to me that the way to receive God's kingdom is not to try to earn it, but merely accept it by simple faith. I also noticed, John, that this account of Jesus blessing the children is found in three of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. And each time, the next event discussed in every one of those Gospels is our Lord's encounter with a man we know in the Scriptures. We call him the rich young ruler. And he would seem to have uh, the world by the tail because he was coming um, to the Lord in exactly the way that Jesus said you should not come, though he seemed to have everything to offer, his youth, his riches, Uh, his power, Uh, but he's coming to the Lord thinking that he's a good person and asking Jesus what further good things he needed to do to earn his salvation. Oh, so now I'm getting the connection. First, you have the little ones as an example of coming to Christ and accepting his grace and simplicity. Then on the other hand, you have the rich young ruler as an example of coming to Christ in pride while trying to earn eternal life. Exactly. So, was the young man able to earn his salvation? No, he was not able to earn eternal life. I I don't want to give away too much now about Jesus' sermon, since we haven't listened to it yet, but Jesus did not deal with that young man 
in a way that I would have anticipated if I were reading this account for the first time. However, I will say this, that when the young guy first started out, he looked at himself as a good person. But Christ revealed the true heart of the rich young ruler by asking him to break the idol in his life, which was his possessions, by giving all that he had to the poor and choosing to follow Christ. Sadly, when Jesus called him to forsake that idol for God's kingdom, the young man dejectedly walked away from Jesus. Our Lord then used this man's refusal of salvation as an example of letting riches stand between a person and God. If I'm not mistaken, what you've discussed so far takes us from Matthew 19:13 to verse 26. But you said that this issue of trying to get to heaven by God's grace instead of your good works extends all the way to chapter 20, verse 16. How do these other verses tie in with the theme? Well, John, why don't we let our listeners hear the message, and then we'll come back and discuss the significance of Jesus' other remarks in this sermon. Fair enough. So let's get right in on the next sermon that Jesus himself preached that Pastor Jones has entitled, Grace versus Works. Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, we're going to pick up at verse 16 as we continue on in the messages of Christ. The, uh, this particular message is kind of interesting. Um, most of the material that is found um, in this particular message of Christ is found in the three different Gospels. So it's mentioned, the Lord mentions it um, on more than one occasion. And if you get to chapter 20, and we'll see how far we get this morning, I'm really not sure. Um, The first 16 verses is not found in any other Gospel, but it is connected. Um, And so we're talking really on the issue of grace versus works. Um, and, And how you see it, is um, it starts in the message we talked about last week with the children. And so uh, we're going to actually start reading at verse 13, kind of bring us up to speed. But it's all connected, really, all the way down to chapter 20 and verse 16. I think you'll see that as we get into it. And so before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we just rejoice in this opportunity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the health and uh, the opportunity to be out this morning. Thank you that the storm wasn't anywhere near as bad as it was predicted about a week ago or so. And we're grateful. And we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that we'll understand it, how it applies to our hearts as individuals. Um, Lord, I pray that, that you'll uh, help uh, guide my thoughts, um, that we will cover what you want us to cover this morning, and see what your word has to say on this issue of trying to earn your favor versus simply uh, uh, putting our, our faith in you and trusting what you've already done. So I pray that you'll guide us in this time and give us a, a good understanding of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now let's start out at verse 13. It says, Then there were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them, not the children, they rebuked the moms who brought them, because the children are like little, little squirts. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, or allow little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Now there's um, more details that that are added, specifically in Mark's gospel. That's why we focused on Mark's gospel account of that. Uh, But that short little account 
really gives us an illustration of salvation by grace, where he says, of such is the kingdom of God. He's, the idea is the kingdom of God belongs to, to people like this. He's, Jesus is saying, this is an illustration of what it means to belong to my kingdom. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus goes on to say, if you don't accept the kingdom as a little child, if you don't receive it as a little child, you won't even enter it. You won't even enter it. So these children are used by Christ as an illustration of salvation by grace. So let me just uh, talk to you briefly about that. Uh, the first thing is that the kids did nothing to earn Christ's blessing. They did nothing to earn it. Uh, he just took them up in his arms and blessed them. The kids had no thought to earn Christ's blessings. A lot of them are, are infants. So they're not thinking you know, about the fact of, wow, what, I've, you know, I've done a great thing to be here. How did they get there? Yeah, mom. I mean, it's not even, it's not even, if, if, have you ever walked with little kids? I mean, the real little ones? Uh, years ago, you know, Lake Scranton um, is a beautiful walk, about three and a half miles around it. My dad and I, we used to live in the area, and we used to walk there quite frequently. Well, I had some nephews at the time, three boys, and I don't know, maybe 10 stir steps, you know, 10, 8, 6, something like that. They wanted to go walking around Lake Scranton with Uncle Lane. So how long do you think that lasted? You know what I'm saying? And, you know, the older one could hold up a little longer. I'm, I'm carrying one or two, one guy on my shoulders for a while. And of course, then, well, the other kid's got to be carried on the shoulders. And you know how that worked? It just, it, it was, it was a, I don't even, I don't know if we went all the way around or not. But I got the impression that when you're walking with kids, what's, the zeal that starts out is not the zeal that they end up with. So... Yeah, these kids, and they're not, they're not even thinking about doing some great thing to earn the Lord's favor. See if I can bring up the third one there. The kids simply received Christ's blessing. That's all they did. They just, in simplicity, received it. Uh, now, this is, um, uh, this is an illustration, and Christ used it as an illustration. Um, it's, it's by no means um, uh, baptism or anything like that. He's just using this as an illustration of the fact that you don't earn it. You don't earn salvation. It's not that you come and you, you do some great work. And, and so he's trying to get that point across. And then you come to verse 16, and, and, and this always follows this, by the way. Again, I'm sure it probably did chronologically, but there is a young man that shows up at this point, and he's the kind of kid, and I don't think he's really a kid, he's probably a young adult, of some influence and some uh, wisdom and, and, and etc. He's a nice young man. But the problem is, is that he's an example of what Jesus was just talking about, of trying to earn his way in. And so we see the tragedy of trying to earn your salvation in what comes next. And so let's start with verse uh, 16. Behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life. Now, the young man has made already two wrong assumptions. And an assumption is something that you accept as true without really taking the time and effort to prove it. So what is he assuming? Well, let's notice, you'll get an idea, if you read Jesus' response, the first part of verse 17, and he said unto him, this is Jesus talking to the young fellow, why callest thou me good? Why are you calling me good? There is none good but one, that is God. 
Now, what assumption is the young man making that Jesus is putting his finger on? I'm sorry? That is a, that is a corollary, you're, and you're right on that. Back up one, but you're right on that. What's that? Yes, he's making an assumption that, that, I'm, that, that we're basically good people. That's what he's making the assumption. And the second that Josh pointed out is the corollary of that. Because we're basically good people, it is possible to earn favor with God by what I do. And so you'll notice how he puts it. What good thing should I do, back up in verse 16, that I may have eternal life? And he calls Jesus good master because it's, it's, the, it's the idea, I'm a good person, you're a good person, we're all good people. We make mistakes every once in a while. But... So you'll notice he's making some wrong assumptions that basically we're good people, we just make mistakes. By the way, just so you, um, I thought this was a very interesting insight, and it was not. I heard it the other day. I, I could get the wrong credit, so I won't give you the, the, the person's name that is, I think is correct. Uh, if you want to ask me later on privately, because I don't want to make a wrong statement here, but, but the man said this, the difference... Um, in your, your whole lineup of, of, of political thinking is whether you believe man is good or not. And he's right on this. He's right on this. That those, um, our founding fathers, who um, those in the conservative movement are trying to kind of hang on to those principles, they believed that man intrinsically was not good and could not be trusted. That's why you balance three different branches of government. There's a lot of checks and balances because of the fact that you don't trust mankind. But when you believe that man is essentially good, uh, it completely changes the way you look, even at the political spectrum. And you find that very, uh, he, uh, there was an excellent insight, and he was exactly, he, he nailed it. Um, so he has a couple wrong assumptions, that man is basically good, that he can earn favor with God. And then he's going to make some wrong evaluations, too. So Jesus says to him in answer, but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. That's an interesting statement, is it not? I thought the scripture clearly says that by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, and it's not of works, lest any man should boast. So why is the Lord bringing up the fact of you can enter into life by keeping the commandments? You're exactly right. You can't. Now, if you could, you could enter into life, Right? Right? Okay, Grant, you were going to say something? Yeah, no, you're right. We can't. The man doesn't understand that. And so Jesus, um, and this is a principle that I thought was very interesting that I heard an evangelist say years ago, and it's, it's made a lot of sense as I look in the Scripture. When Jesus is dealing with people, if he, if he comes across a proud person, he will give them law. He'll give them God's law because if they listen to it and they truly evaluate it, They'll see, it'll humble them. When you find a humble person, Jesus gives them grace. Now you think about the kids. The kids are not coming with any kind of pretenses. They're just, they're just there. God gives them grace. When you come in pride, God gives you law because you need to see your sin. And so he, he starts out bringing up the commandments. Now, he's, he's making uh, some wrong evaluations. The, the, and the first one you really see in the man's response to this in verse 18. So Jesus said, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, the young man says to Jesus, which? 
So now, what's his first wrong evaluation? And it's about God. Yes, the idea of multiple choice. The wrong evaluation is that God will be satisfied with partial obedience. Which ones do I need to keep? That's what she's also saying, which ones do I not need to keep? You with me? So his evaluation of God, and it's an evaluation that is so common, especially when you want to believe that man is intrinsically good, the evaluation is that God really doesn't mean everything that he says. You, you know, he, he talks about complete obedience and all that, but he really doesn't mean that. God is satisfied with partial obedience. And the thought process behind that is because otherwise, who's getting to heaven? And we would be correct if we were trying to earn it ourselves. He's going to make a second evaluate, wrong evaluation, that, that God is satisfied with partial obedience. Well, Jesus says, um, so he says, which? Which commandments do I need to keep? Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. How do you think he's going to check that box? Okay on that one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. How's he going to check that box? Haven't done that. He's not thinking about the when Jesus said, if you lust for a woman, you've committed adultery. He's not thinking about that. Okay, I think he's just thinking about, have I committed? Nope, I'll check that box. I'm okay. Thou shalt not steal. Eh, you know, I, but in his mind, I'm checking that box. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Do you think he never lied? Well, it depends on how you grade yourself, does it not? I haven't told a lie in a long time. You know, I've been doing pretty well. Check that box. Uh, honor thy father and thy mother. You think he always obeyed mom and dad? Always had it with a good attitude immediately? I doubt it, but maybe he did quite a bit, right? His mom and dad like him. He's a nice kid. They love him. They think he's a great kid. Check that box. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Do I, oh, I, I, I helped uh, uh, Grandma Smith across the street there, you know, gave, brought, brought mom's cookies over to her, and I, I you know, I, I do different things for different people. Check that box. Why do I say that? Verse 20, the young man saith unto him, all these things have I kept from my youth up. So two wrong evaluations. God is satisfied with partial obedience, and God does not mean exactly what he says. What I mean by that is, the fact that, well, I haven't lied much. I honor my mom and dad almost all the time. You see, you know, you see what I'm saying? We really think God grades on the curve. But you'll notice, he does have an honest fear. Do you see it at the end of verse 20? What lack I yet? He's still thinking, I'm not good enough to get to heaven. Which means, and he's right on that. I'm not, well, actually, he's thinking about God's kingdom. Not so much thinking about heaven necessarily, but God's kingdom. So he has a fear because he knows himself well enough, at least is honest enough with himself to realize, I have not been perfect. And I don't know if he had ever heard John the Baptist preach or Jesus preach yet, but... He, he has, at least in his conscience and understanding, I, I, I know I do not measure up. But the thought is, if I just have a good deed or two that I could do, something to earn God's favor, it'll put me over the top. Now, what Jesus is going to do 
is he's going to give him simple commands. There are three of them, boom, 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 in verse 21. But they're also testing his obedience to what he just said he kept. And by the way, I'm not saying, I'm not saying this guy thinks, um, I don't think he's trying to lie to the Lord. I think he really feels like he is keeping these things. I think he really feels God grades on the curve. So Jesus said unto him, that that will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, there's commandment number one, sell everything you got, and give to the poor. By the way, what commandment would he be observing that he just said he kept? Love your neighbor as yourself. See, if I really love my neighbor as myself, it doesn't matter who owns my stuff. And if God says, give it away, then I should be willing to give it away. So really, Jesus is putting his finger on that single commandment. By the way, it touches, it touches the other ones in many ways. But he's going to put his finger on that commandment and say, okay, I want you to observe that. You're saying you keep it, observe it. What? And he gives him one more thing. He said, in verse 21 again, sell all you have, give to the poor, Thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Here's a blessing you'll have. God's going to reward you in eternity. And come and follow me. There's commandment number three. Sell all you got. Give it to the poor. Follow me. And he said, I'll, you, you're going to be you know, wealthy in heaven. You've got to get your eyes off this world. Focus on that. Now, um, who owns all that we have? God does. God does not always tell a person to give everything you got away. But if he did, and he does here, and I, I know people who have. I, I know a guy who uh, ended up on the mission field in Brazil, and the year before um, he surrendered as a missionary, uh, his business made, this is, we're talking in the 80s, okay, so back a number of years ago, he, he made a million dollars for the first time in his business. It was a construction business, I think doing well, and just God burdened him and said, I want you to go to the mission field, and he gave it all away and said, you know, I'm going to do that. And he did. And, and, and today, he went to Brazil for a number of years, and now he's working in the, like in the um, administration part in Baptist Mid-Missions out in Ohio, last that I heard of him. Um, so sometimes the Lord does that. But if, if God said, give away all your possessions, who owns them in the first place? God does. So if I hang on to God's possessions when he says to give them away, what am I really doing? I'm disobeying. I'm stealing. You with me? Didn't he check the box that, 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 that he hadn't stolen anything? Now, if he hasn't loved his neighbor as himself, and if he is hanging on to possessions that God just said give away, do you realize that throughout the Old Testament, this is not something that is in part of the Scriptures, it, is per, it permeates the Scriptures. The image of unfaithfulness and disloyalty to God is compared to adultery in that relationship between God and me. He checked the box already. He said, I've not committed adultery. 
Can I also point out to you um, where it says, um, though thy neighbor is thyself, obviously he does not do that either. And I would wonder what God would have done with his money if God wouldn't have even saved the lives of some of the people around him as a result of if he had really given his money to the poor. You know, uh, an example of that would be uh, the, the fictitious story of Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, what would God do if we truly surrendered? And uh, if Again, he's not telling everybody to give away their money, but in this case he did. Who might have been physically saved as a result of, of his money if he'd been willing to do that? Matter of fact, it's very likely he broke every one of those commandments in his disobedience to the Lord because he certainly bore false witness, did he not? Saying he kept them. Notice the young man's um, response. It's in verse 22. It's a sorrowful choice. When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. And why does he choose to disobey the Lord's command? Because he had great possessions. He loved his, the things that God had given him and allowed him to have more than he loved the God who gave him that choice. And so we see that this guy who thought he could earn favor with God is walking away in rebellion against God. And you'll also see, obviously, he did not earn his salvation. He did not earn favor with God. But he does walk away with this understanding, and that is, I'm not a good person. Why do you think he's sorrowful? I think he's got a view of himself that he didn't have before. I think you're right, Judy. Why else? You ever made a decision and you knew it was the wrong one? How do you feel about that? Terrible, right? Not only that, he's been afraid of not being able to go to God's kingdom, and now he knows he's not going. We don't know what happened to him. It'd be interesting to see if he ever came back, but I find it interesting that when he no longer wants to obey the Lord, he does not want to be around the Lord any longer, and he walks away. People often talk about people walking away from God or walking away from church. And sometimes there are um, things that, that do offend people. I get that. And, and, but can I say that and I, could, I could tell some stories, I won't, of some of the people in this congregation who have gone through things and seen things happen in churches that have been terrible, that have been ungodly, that have been wrong, but they didn't walk away from the Lord. They may have gone away from that work because it was not pleasing to the Lord. Maybe they got their eyes open, but they did not walk away from God. That's the heart of a believer. The, the person that walks away from God is you often find, just like this young fella, they're walking away because they don't want to follow him. And they make all kinds of excuses. People aren't nice enough. They're not friendly enough. They didn't want... The bottom line is this. You walk away because you don't want to obey. And so there he goes. Now the Lord turns to his disciples at this point with a powerful lesson. Verse 23. 
Um, verse 23, when, then Jesus said to unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now can I just say that that would be an absolute shock to these disciples? Uh, and, and look at verse 24, And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And don't try to explain it in all... I, I've heard different explanations. Jesus is basically saying it's humanly impossible for a rich man to go to heaven. That's what he's saying. Now, um, uh, why would that be such a shock to the disciples? Everything they had to follow Jesus. Well, they weren't rich. Yeah, yeah, we're going to come to that, but yeah, Lori. Well, there was a thought based on the Old Testament saints like Abraham and Isaac. They were wealthy men, and they were close to the Lord. So there was an equation where they thought wealth meant closeness to God. Okay, if you didn't hear in the back, uh, Lori has it right that, that in, the, in the Jewish mindset, and this is still today among many of the Jewish people, think the Old Testament. Who are your heroes? Let me just list you some. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Joshua, Moses, David, Solomon, Daniel, Sarah, Ruth, Esther, all of these people are successful people. They are, many of them, wealthy people. If you look at their history, you look at their heroes, their, their, and so equating riches is, is part of the favor of God. That's how they would view that. And so, really, the, the mindset is that many times the wealthiest, they're not, they're, they would understand there are exceptions. They would get that. But, but many, many times, the, the wealthy are the godly ones. And when Jesus says, the rich man is so difficult, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle, it was just absolutely mind-boggling to them. Look at verse 25. That when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, who then can be saved? If the rich people aren't going in, who is? That was just completely foreign to them. But notice Jesus' answer. Verse 26, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The bottom line is this. None of us get saved without the miracle of God. I don't think we really get that. I think we believe that if we can, if we can surround our kids with gospel um, from the time that they're young, that it's kind of an inevitable thing that they're going to accept the Lord. And I will tell you that it will be a miracle. That you cannot put a formula together that will save the human soul. It is a miracle. I, it's not a miracle to get a kid to pray a prayer. It's not a miracle to get a, a child to go through a confirmation class or whatever. But it is a miracle for any of us, any of us, to accept the Lord as Savior and mean it. Truly repent of our sins. Truly come to Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Now that leads then, so this powerful um, lesson. But again, thank God for the last part, for Jesus' answer, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that, that's the reality, that with God everything is possible. And thank God that he does save people. And, and so we're grateful for that. At this point, is the tendency then as believers to think that you and I can earn God's favor. Because we saw the children, they didn't do anything. And Jesus said, that's your example. That you just simply receive. 
the blessings I have given you without doing anything to earn it. Then you have the rich young fella, nice kid. Matter of fact, one of the Gospels specifically says when the Lord looked at him, he loved him. And yet, Jesus is, 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 is showing, and tragically, this guy's pride and his possessions are standing in his way. He, he will not turn at this point in his life to the Lord. Now, the disciples speak up. Peter is kind of the spokesman here. Look at verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? We have done what the rich young fella wouldn't do. So I want you to think about this, the tendency that you and I will, like Peter, to say, Lord, I've done all these things for you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. So what do I get? And, and um, you see Peter's question, actually his statement, first of all, we've, we have done this. We, Lord, Lord, we gave up everything. We walked away from our jobs, and they did. Uh, Peter had a wife. And he's not able to spend a lot of time with her right now. Um, and then, then his question, so what do we get? <laughs> What's that? Well, yeah, it's, but here's the deal. Am, do I really want to hold God to what I've earned? Is that what I want? See, that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, Lord, I have done this, and we've done this, all 12 of us, so what do we get? And it's interesting, the Lord's answer. Because um, notice how he puts this. Jesus, verse 28, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, that's in the resurrection, that's when we, we, in eternity, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye all shall so sit upon 12 uh, thrones, Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he is saying, you are going to get blessings for following me. I'm, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have authority. Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. I'm going to bless those of you for what you sacrificed. I'm going to reward you. Now, by the way, they were true followers. One of them is not. One of them is Judas. He, notice how he put it, ye which have followed me. Judas, unfortunately, wasn't following Jesus. He was self-seeking. But then he makes that statement in verse 30, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. What does he mean by that? Have you thought about that? There are people that seem... They have everything going, and they've done everything right, and everybody looks up to them, and yet they're going to be last. And then there's other ones that are going to be first. And then he tells this parable, we're going to have to go through it quickly, but, it, but this parable illustrates what we're talking about, the difference between grace and works. Now let me, let me show it to you. Verse, chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A penny is a day's wage. So I want you to notice this first group 
And they represent the thought process that Peter's expressing, and they represent, as a believer now, and they also represent the, the thought process that that rich young fellow who was a lost man was, 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 was thinking about, and that is simply this. I can earn favor with God. And so these first workers are illustrating the fact that, you know what? I, God, I, if you'll give me this, I'll work for you. I want what I earned. Have you ever had somebody say something like this? What did I ever do to deserve this? And often it's in a negative context. It's a complete misunderstanding of who we are and who God is. The reality is you don't want what you earned. Because what we earn by our lifestyle and by our choices is God's wrath, not his, not his blessing. But these, these people are making an agreement. They want what, what's due to them. Verse, uh, if we'll work for you a day, and we want, the, we want the day's wage. Okay, verse 3. And he went out about the third hour, three hours later, saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and notice the agreement here, and whatsoever is right I will give you. So did they agree for what they earned, or did they just agree for whatever the master wanted to give them? They're agreeing for whatever the master... They're not making an agreement as far as any specific money. They're just trusting the master. You with me? They're not bargaining with the master. They're just trusting his goodness. And they went to their way. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. So halfway through the day, he finds some more people. Three quarters through the day, he finds some more people. Just does the same thing, no definite agreement, just a, an agreement of, of whatever's right, I'll give you. Verse 6, about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle. Saith unto them, why stand ye here all day idle? These guys aren't even working, they're just kind of standing around. If, if it was today's society, they'd be playing with their cell phones. They say unto him, because no man hath hired us, he saith unto them, ye also go into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right ye shall receive. Again, no agreement. No, God, you give me what I earn. They're just trusting that the master will, will do something for them. And these guys are only going to work an hour. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his servant, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. This is, remember that statement at the end of, verse, of chapter 20, chapter 19, excuse me. And when they came, they that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny, a day's wage, for an hour's worth of work. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny, a day's wage. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Did you not make an agreement? You wanted me to be fair with you, and I have been. We made an agreement. And can I tell you, no man will ever stand before God and say, you have been unfair to me. Nobody. But you don't want his justice, his fairness. You want his grace. And it doesn't come by earning it. Verse 14, take that as thine and go thy way. 
I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Look at verse 15. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? You see, God's grace, none of us deserve it. None of us have earned it. That's the whole point of it. It's God's help that we don't deserve. And Jesus said, you have to get it like a little child. You just simply receive it. You don't earn it. And, and even though Peter had sacrificed greatly, the, the bottom line, yeah, and the Lord would bless him for that, the bottom line is he wasn't earning God's favor either. And the attitude that you and I need to have toward the Lord is one of faith and, and, and one of love and obedience to him. Notice again his conclusion. So the last shall be first and the first last. If you're doing it for yourself, if you're trying to say, well, God, I'm going to do these wonderful things for you, and therefore you must do these wonderful things for me. You're trying to bargain with God. God will be fair with you. But that's not grace. It would be like the child. Put your faith in the goodness of God, the character of God, in the cross of Christ, and not in yourself. Because notice the last part of the verse. Many are called, but few are chosen. That goes back to that salvation issue. God is reaching out to the world. Tragically, few. Few find His grace. Few experience His grace. Are you trying to earn God's favor, or have you... Simply by faith, put your faith in God and Christ and what He's done on the cross for your sins. Conclusions, let me give you quickly. Number one, little children illustrate simple faith. Number two, childlike faith is essential for both salvation and spiritual growth. Never come before God thinking, I have earned this. I've earned your goodness. Number three, pride and self-righteousness lead to performance-based religion. I think I can be good enough. I can earn the favor of God. Number four, you can obey God's commands out of love or self-interest. Which do you think God expects? Which do you think he honors? Is it really going to be about you? Or is it going to be about the Lord? I take you one spot in closing, 1 Corinthians 13. While you're flipping there, let me give you the, the final one. God, can, God wants you to obey him because you love him, not because you're trying to make a bargain with him. Peter's, Peter's thought process, I get it, was wrong. Lord, we've left all these things. We've done all these things. What do we get? <laughs> what do we get? I get it. But notice how the Apostle Paul put it. 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I have all these abilities, spiritual gifts from God, and have not charity, have not love. I am become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and could understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, have not love, I am nothing. I've done all these wonderful things. If I had all these spiritual gifts, verse 1, if I've done all these wonderful things, verse 2, how about if I make all these tremendous sacrifices, verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, there's the rich young rule, and though I give my body to be burned, martyr's death, and have not charity, it profits me what? Nothing. God doesn't want your performance. He wants your heart. He wants you.
Always rely on God's grace, not your works. Always. So before, when we looked at Christ's message, we saw the connection between trusting God's grace and the contrast between the children brought to Jesus and the rich young ruler. But how does Peter's question about rewards for his loyalty to Christ fit with the same theme? Well, Peter, who is a genuine follower of Christ, asked Jesus what true disciples like him will get in return for their works for Christ. But he is again looking for reward for his works. So this shows us that even after our conversion, we can still try to earn God's favor and even God's reward by our works. In answer to Peter's question, Jesus talked about the fact that he will reward those who have sacrificed much to follow him. However, Christ also warned that there are many who appear to be first-rate followers of our Lord on earth who actually are not going to be greatly rewarded. Why is that? Well, as I read at the end of the message, I believe the answer is found in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. That is, though two people's works for Christ may look exactly the same, if one serves Christ out of self-interest with the attitude, what Peter's expressing, what do I get? From God for my loyalty and service, while the other serves Christ out of love and gratitude for what the Lord has done for him, God, who obviously sees the heart, will reveal our true motives and will far more greatly reward the one who served him out of genuine love over the one that served him out of self-interest. So how do you know whether you're serving God out of love or self-interest? Well, let me say two things in answer to that question. Uh, First of all, it's almost impossible to know your own heart, whether or not your motives are exactly what God would want them to be or not. I know the Apostle Paul himself is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and he's talking about standing before God. He says, For I know nothing against myself. Isn't that interesting, Paul? at that point of his life, says, I I don't know of anything that I haven't confessed before God, or I'm I'm trying to be as right with God as I possibly can. So it shows you again how how loyal this man was to the Lord. He says, Yet am I not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. That's our motives then each one's praise will come from God. So um, it's really hard, honestly, to know whether I'm serving God out of self-interest or out of love. But let me also say that no one gets to heaven, and this is the second thing that's really, really important to understand, no one gets to heaven by serving God out of love. We all must uh, come, and that includes you, it includes me, we all must come by admitting to God that we are sinners who fall woefully short of God's holy and just standards of perfection. Make no mistake, no sin enters heaven. Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 says, but there shall by no means enter in it, speaking of heaven, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're also told in Titus 1 2 that God cannot lie. So for a sinner to enter heaven would mean that God would cease to be God, for God has already said that nothing that defiles can enter his holy heaven. So if the standard for heaven is perfection, who other than God himself and possibly angels could ever go there? Well, that's why the cross had to happen. 
When a person accepts Christ and trusts Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to save him, that person is forgiven for all his sin, past, present, and future. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 states that Jesus has, and I'm quoting now, washed us from our sins in his own blood, end of quote. So when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice completely satisfied God's payment for our sins. You'll recall when John the Baptist announced Jesus to the world at the beginning of Christ's public ministry, his words were, and I quote, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, end of quote. So he's not merely covering the sin of the world, or make, but he's taking it away. So that means if I believe that Christ died in my place and I'll repent of my sins and ask him to save me, he'll completely cleanse me from all my sins? Exactly. And instantaneously, you'll be transferred from being a sinner in God's sight to being God's child. This may sound strange to some of our listeners, but the Apostle Paul addressed the people of the church of Corinth at large and called them saints. And these were not people who were, many of them, walking God and living godly lives. And solid Bible scholars will tell you that he is referring to all those, not only in that church who had received Christ, but he mentions all others around them who had received the same Savior. So we are transferred from being sinners to saints in God's sight when we accept his son Jesus as our sacrifice and accept him as our Savior. How can God do that? How can he call me a saint when I still sin against him? He can do that because he looks at you not as you are right now, but as you will be for eternity, which is far longer than our little blip of a life on earth right now. Further, God has every right to do this because Jesus Christ has already paid for every sin you will you have ever or will ever commit when he died on the cross. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. It's talking about us and God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Every sin. It's amazing when you think about it. But if God's forgiveness is so perfect, then what's to prevent me from just going out and living as much as in sin as I like since God's already forgiven me? Well, there are at least two problems with that logic. First of all, is you're, you're underestimating the damage and the tragedy of living in sin. Um, sin is what burdens us. It's what beats us down. It's what ruins our marriages. It's what really ruin, ruins our lives. So why would we want to go back to that jail cell again? As a matter of fact, it was Jesus addressing people who were bound by their sin when he said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The second thing we're underestimating when we when we want to just think I can go out and live any way I want to is we're underestimating God's hatred for sin. And so God will not take salvation away from his child when a child of God accepts him, but he will discipline him. And I'll just read you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, which says, um, And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. That means he disciplines us harshly when we uh, rebel against him. Wow, God's grace is that wonderful. Yes, thank the Lord it is. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at com. 
Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at calkinsbaptistchurch.com. We would also like to invite you to attend our services in person. Service times on Sunday are 9 a.m. Sunday school for all ages, 10 a.m. morning service, and 6.30 p.m. evening service. We have a midweek Bible study as well on Wednesday evenings starting at 6.30 p.m. If any of you would like to share this radio message with a friend, you can find a link to our podcast on our Facebook page. Just look for a Radio Bold icon on our feed. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Life and